the first reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 14. And if you want to follow it um, in the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 53 in the Old Testament section. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a fire of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burnt up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And then he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He then said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. For the second reading um, today, we're going to have a selection of verses from the book of Hebrews, um, which are all on the theme of the accessible Jesus. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is, on the other hand, the introduction of a better hope, through which we approach God. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart, full assurance of faith. I'd like, as our starting point for my sermon this morning, to offer for our consideration a basic premise about the nature of God. Now, I am aware that in doing something like this, I am, to coin a phrase, merely a midget standing on the shoulder of a giant. The giant, in this case, being the entire Judeo-Christian tradition of theology, which has spent the last 3,000 years trying to offer some kind of premise about the nature of God, and, and I've got one for you this morning. I've often described the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, as being a series of thought experiments concerning the nature of God, with succeeding generations of the people of God, first the Jews and more, uh, more recently the Christians, trying different perspectives on the divine kind of trying those on for size. And the great theological traditions of the church have continued this process of trying to puzzle out who God is and how we speak about God down the millennia. People have sought to take the insights of the Bible and apply them to their own contexts in ways which uh, make God accessible for them in their context in fresh ways. Even the term theology, if you unpick its ancient Greek origins, simply means, anybody know your Greek? Theos, logos, words about God. So the whole tradition of theology is simply the attempt to, to put God into words. Which brings me to this morning. As together in our small way we attempt to climb the latest pinnacle of the great mountain of theology, possibly. So what words about God can we share today that might make God accessible for us in our time and our place? Well, the basic premise about the nature of God that I'd like us to consider is simple, and it is this. God is not me. That's it. God is not me. Therefore, God is not you. God is not us. Or, to put it another way, the corollary of the negative statement that God is not me is the positive assertion that God is other. And this is a very bold thing to say about God because it flies in the face of so much that people might want to and commonly do assert about God. You see, many people, even many people within the communities of faith that call themselves churches, are not, it seems to me, really convinced that God is other. From the post-enlightenment liberal rationalist who asserts that all our language about God is metaphorical, to the fundamentalist who asserts that God's word as revealed in scripture is literal, there is a weird common ground that God, in some way at least, is still contained within human language. 
And whether the words we use to speak of God are metaphorical or literal, whether our theology is liberal or conservative, the functional operating premise of Western Christianity has been that God is to be found in the words we use to speak of God. That God is to be found in theology. And this can have some disastrous consequences. Because it leads to the conclusion that whoever controls the words that are used to speak about God, whoever sets the theos logos, whoever sets the theology, in some way is controlling of God. And that's a very powerful place to be if you can control God. The words that I and my tribe, I mean church, use to speak about God will not, of course, be the same as the words used by the different tribe, I mean church, down the road. And if we have located God's essence and presence within the words that we use to speak about God, then when we disagree about our theology, we're actually disagreeing not just about words about God, but about the very nature and being of God as revealed to humans. People have fought wars over less. And churches and denominations have fractured and split over exactly this issue. So to assert that God is not me, to affirm that God is other, is to admit that all of our thoughts about God, all of our ideas and words about God, all of our beliefs and theologies about God, no matter how deeply held and how carefully conceived, all of these are not God. Because God is not me. God is other. And there's part of me that finds this immensely comforting, as well as deeply challenging. The thing is, each of us has a tendency to place ourselves at the centre of our own world. Maybe we can't help it. Maybe it's a function of the fact that the only eyes I have through which to view this world are my eyes, and the only ears through which I can hear the words of others are my ears, and the only brain with which I can process the information taken in by my senses is my brain. Of course I'm the centre of my own world just as you are the centre of your own world. Philosophically speaking, there's a genuine question to be asked here about whether there is anything at all beyond our personal subjective perception of reality. There's a name for this. It's, it's the question of ontology, the question of whether only that which can be perceived really exists. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it really fall? If a man speaks and no one hears him, is he still wrong? Yeah, those kinds of questions. The only evidence I have of a world beyond my own thoughts and imaginings is the evidence of my own senses, which are both subjective and flawed. There is a chance that you are merely a figment of my imagination, or possibly that I am merely a figment of yours. Or maybe we're just all living inside a computer simulation. And if you think that sounds far-fetched, think again. There is a strong case for arguing that the technology to do this is now so close that it makes it almost inevitable that the, it will be able to happen. And if it is inevitable, who is to say it hasn't already happened and we're it? 
If nothing exists beyond our own perception of reality, whether that be biologically or virtually perceived, then God, once again, becomes nothing more than an extension of my own or your own psyche. And so I want to say again very clearly that God is not me. God is other. This isn't an entirely new insight, of course, because, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes famously said, there is nothing new under the sun. The insight that God is other to us is there within the theological tradition. And the story of Moses and the burning bush is the classic, perhaps the definitive example of this. When Moses hears and sees God, the voice, the vision, are not just inside his own head. This is no still small voice or gentle whisper barely heard. Rather, the voice of God in the Moses story is personified as an angel speaking from a bush that burns but does not burn away. God in this story is not Moses. God is other to Moses. And it poses something of a problem for him, as it does for all of us who have sought to encounter God as other to ourselves. How on earth does one draw near to a God whose being is so utterly alien and other to our own experiences and perceptions of reality that our thoughts and words cannot contain that other? When Moses realises that he has strayed onto the territory of the divine other, that he is standing, so to speak, on holy ground, he hides his face because he is afraid to look at God. And I think I'm probably with Moses here. It is a fearful thing to admit to our minds the idea of God as other. We have no idea how to conceive of a God who does not at some level look or behave like us. It's why most of the words we use to speak about God are analogous, of course, to words that are part of our own experience. The language of the burning bush is intentionally othering. It's a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. And it leaves us with Moses confused and afraid. How can Moses, how can we draw near to a God who is so utterly other to us? But the God of the burning bush won't leave Moses alone. He speaks to Moses of the suffering of Moses' people. He speaks to Moses of freedom, of an end to oppression. God draws decisively near to Moses, even as Moses doesn't know how to draw near to God. And again, I think this is a profound insight. So much of what passes for Christian spirituality is about us trying to find ways of drawing near to God through prayer, meditation, the disciplines of spiritual observance. Now, please don't hear me wrong, by the way. I'm not opposed to the practice of prayer or meditation or any of the other forms of spiritual discipline. But we do need to be clear that any encounter we may have with the God who is not us can never originate from within 
us. To think that by our efforts, however well-intentioned, we can access the presence of God is just once again to create God within our own frame of reference. And as I've been trying to say very clearly, any God we create through our own words and efforts is not actually God. The insight of Moses encountering the burning bush is that God draws near to us, that God speaks to us from beyond, that God enters into our world of suffering, oppression, violence, to bring freedom and healing and peace. And these are not blessings that we can summon up ourselves. They will always come to us from beyond our own frame of reference. In fact, it is the very nature of God as other to us that's the crucial factor here. All interhuman attempts at bringing into being a new and better world are, I think, doomed to failure. Because for all of our ingenuity and brilliance, there is one thing we cannot change. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from our human nature. Selfishness will always out because we are fundamentally selfish beings. It's only a God who speaks to us from beyond ourselves calling us to enter holy grounds that's not of our own construction, who can save us from ourselves and our repeating cycles of selfish ambition. So who is this God who is other? That's Moses' next question. As if the activity of God in calling him to a new place of holiness had not already revealed enough about the nature of the one who is beyond our imagining. Moses wants a name. He wants syllables to speak and words to utter. He wants to turn divine encounter into words about God. He wants to invent theology. Give me a name, he says. Give me words to describe you. And so God gives him a name. I am who I am, says God. God is. God is not Moses. God is not an idol. God is not a man or a woman. God is not an idea or a concept or an ideology. God is not me. God is not you. God just is. God is who God is. I am who I am, God says to Moses. It is, I think, the most profound statement of theology in human history that the only words that can adequately capture the essence of the mystery of the divine are themselves words of mystery because God doesn't exist in words of human construction rather God is encountered in relationship in the call that each of us receives that takes us beyond ourselves beyond our finite subjective frames of reference and onto the holy ground of the presence of the other who speaks into the human heart words and ideas of justice and love and peace and freedom. 
concepts that can never arise purely from within us, but must always come to us as a gift from beyond ourselves. And this is how God is encountered, not through our efforts, but by grace and invitation, and by the one who is other, making their presence and nature known to us. Which brings me, at last, to the sermon to the Hebrews. And our title for today, for today, The Accessible Jesus. If you've been part of our journey through the book of Hebrews in recent weeks, you will know that we've uh, uh, been talking about the fact that the congregation it was written for had a bit of a problem, which is that they were struggling to relate to God through Jesus. Because the, the teachings and actions of Jesus, which had once brought God so close, were rapidly receding into the past. And the God that they worshipped in heaven in the name of Jesus was exactly there, high up in heaven, distant and aloof from all of the triumphs and tribulations and joys and sorrows of their day-to-day -day lives. And so the preacher of Hebrews has been offering them a variety of ways in which they can experience the presence of Jesus with them day by day. And in this collection of verses that we have before us today, we see a picture of Jesus as the one who bridges the gap between God and humans, between humans and God. Whilst none of us, by our own efforts, can enter the presence of God, it is the action of God in sending Jesus that once and for all opens the doorway between heaven and earth, between earth and heaven. The invitation that we receive to step onto holy ground, which echoes the invitation to Moses, is offered to us and to all people by the person of Jesus, God made flesh. The God who is not me, the God who is not you, is made known in Jesus. The God who is other draws near to us in Jesus and invites us to draw near to him. The revelation that begins with Moses on a mountain in Sinai finds its fulfilment in a stable in Bethlehem on a cross outside Jerusalem and in a garden with an empty tomb. But lest we fall back into the error of once again trying to create God in our own image, it is not the stories of Jesus which save us. Neither is it the words of the Gospels which are good news for all people. Jesus cannot be contained in letters and books. Jesus is not found in human words, however inspired they may be. Rather, Jesus is God's spoken word. Spoken to humanity so definitively that the new world of love and justice and peace and freedom that he proclaims echoes throughout all of human history as a clarion call from beyond ourselves to recognise that we are not all that there is to this universe. And that the one who is beyond us who calls us in love to take the step of faith onto the holy ground of love, is doing so through Jesus. All that's required of us are humble hearts, open to receive the gift of Christ that saves us from ourselves by breaking into 
as subjective, insular, selfish souls with an invitation to a new way of being human, where astonishingly and miraculously we are no longer at the centre of our own existence. It's an invitation to a life where we love our neighbour as much as we love ourselves. That's a very hard thing, isn't it? You haven't met my neighbours. <laughs> they swear a lot in the garden when the weather's nice. Love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. It's an invitation to enter a life where we love God, who is not us, with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. It's not easy, is it, to love God with everything? I always want to keep a bit back, thank you very much, in case I need it later. The accessible Jesus is the one who opens the pathway between us and the God who is not us, who invites us into the presence of the divine other through no effort on our part. In Jesus, God reaches out in love to save us from ourselves in ways we can never manage by our own efforts. And I want to say very clearly that this is not an exclusive gift, offered only to the chosen few who in some way deserve it, or have earned it through holy living or careful study. The love of God made manifest in Jesus is a universal love that is extended to all people in all times and all places. The word universalism sometimes gets a bad press amongst Christians as if it were a marker of heresy. I'd like to reclaim it, please and invite you to rejoice with me that God's love is universal, that Christ died for all and was raised for all, so that each and every person, and indeed the whole of creation itself, can find its true nature and purpose within the love of the God who is beyond us. And if you want to know what that looks like in practice... You should have been with us yesterday afternoon. What does it mean to think of London Pride as a place where God is? Not just with the happy Christians who are stood there, beautifully dressed as angels, holding placards saying God is love, or the church owes you an apology, God loves you, or I'm sorry it took me so long, but what if God is out there in the parade with all of that diversity and from the point of view of some of us, weirdness? I don't even begin to pretend to understand some of what I saw yesterday. It is utterly alien to me, but it is not, dare I suggest, alien to the love of God. God is not found just with the angry Christians who stand in a pen with police protection, holding placards proclaiming that those who do not live the way that they believe people should live are going to go to hell and preaching through microphones about how certain behaviours are going to lead people to the doorway of hell itself. 
What if God is not just there either? What if God is everywhere? What if God is in and through all of that yesterday? As we were sat here in the communion service in the evening, I looked around uh, the room. I was uh, sat at the back with, uh, doing the PA, and I thought, what an unlikely bunch of people to find in church. You know, if you'd taken a photograph and said, does this look like a church congregation? The answer would have been no. Some of the clothing, some of the hairstyles, it was not your normal church group. What was very interesting, though, was when we got to the final hymn, which was Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is my story, this is my song, praising my saviour all the day long. They knew the words as well as I did. They didn't need the script or the screens. And I thought, you know, these people started out in church. These are people who have been told by Christian communities, God is not with you. God does not love you. What if, in Christ, the love of God is so universal, so absolute, that it is there too? And as a thought to close, I do find myself wondering why Christians spend quite so much time trying to define God in human words, arguing over who's right and who's wrong, over issues of orthodoxy and heresy, over who's in and who's out, over whether there are some people whom God loves and some whom he judges. It seems pretty clear to me that through Jesus, all people are brought within the love of God. Good news for one must be good news for all, or it is not good news. And if we seek to keep the good news of the love of God from some, we in turn withhold it from ourselves. This is the judgment of God. But this new kingdom of God is a kingdom with no barriers, it is a city with no walls, it is a nation with no borders. So each of us are invited onto the holy ground before the burning bush to discover the God who is not us, speaking words to us of love and acceptance and forgiveness and freedom and justice. And each of us are then invited with Moses and through Christ to take the next step of faith and to start living the kingdom of God into being in our world, living it as if it were true, until it is true.